0: Good afternoon and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. You will receive a SurveyMonkey link after today's activity. And if you're viewing online, you will receive the link via the chat or you can access the links icon at the bottom of your screen. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Paige Quinn one of our third year internal medicine residents. Her career and research in interests after residency involved the field of gastroenterology. She received her medical degree from Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine in Blacksburg, Virginia. Prior to attending medical school, she completed a BS in biomedical sciences, as well as minoring in psychology and chemistry at Averett University in Virginia. In her free time, she enjoys spending time with her two beagles or woodworking. Join me in welcoming Dr. Gwynn.
1: Thank you for that introduction and thank you for being here today, whether in person or online. My topic today is the management of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in obese patients, um, particularly with type two diabetes. I have no financial or professional disclosures. My objectives on this particular topic is to recognize the risk factors associated with um, developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, discussing the pathophysiology of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, as well as reviewing evidence-based management, um, particularly in obese patients with type 2 diabetes, although there is some overlap in just obese patients um, individually. To kind of give an outline of how today would go, definition is gonna be first on both obesity and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, then going over the spectrum, pathophysiology, uh, morbidity, mortality, and then management is split into several different um, subcategories and then the questions in the survey. So to start out with our definition, what exactly is obesity? It's considered the excessive accumulation of fat in the adipose tissue throughout the body. When they did compare an all-cause mortality um, between patients with normal body weight and those with obesity, they found that the hazard ratio for severe obesity was 1.29%. Obesity in and of itself is ranked number two for the most preventable risk factor um, of overall death after smoking. And in the US, it's the single greatest threat to public health. So then what exactly is our non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? But it's simply non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is kind of the hepatic manifestation of metabolic syndrome. Um, So sometimes you can see it called metabolic associated liver disease. Um, It's the most common cause of chronic uh, liver disease in the world, and it's a major public health issue in the U.S. In order to be classified under this category, you need at least um, evidence of hepatic steatosis, either by imaging or histology from biopsy, and you need a lack of secondary causes of the hepatic fat accumulation. It's generally a silent disease, so you don't really get any symptoms until uh, later stages. And so your lab tests can also be normal during those early stages, so it's often missed at that time. Um, It's estimated that around 25% of adults have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but this increases based on certain risk factors. So in obesity, this can increase to 77.87%, and in type 2 diabetes, that 25% can increase to 59.67%. So some of the risk factors going over with them, obesity, like we mentioned of them, which is why I kind of gave it its own um, individual slide, dyslipidemia, your insulin resistance, your metabolic syndrome, your type two diabetes, your arterial hypertension, and then several different genetic factors um, in and of themselves. So non-alcoholic fatty liver disease isn't necessarily just one thing, it's more of a spectrum of a disease. Uh, We know that you have at some point a healthy liver and then you have something that causes lipogenesis from risk factors. So multi-hit hypothesis is usually the one that we go with and then you end up with the fatty liver. So to kind of give you a definition, terminology of the actual spectrum, I put this up here. So the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, so the NAFLD encompasses the entire spectrum of the fatty liver disease Uh, in individuals without any significant um, consumption of alcohol, and it can range from fatty liver to steatohepatitis to cirrhosis. For non-alcoholic fatty liver, this is where you have that presence of where it's saying greater than or equal to 5% of the hepatic steatosis, um, but there's no actual hepatic uh, injury. So this would be seen as there's no ballooning of the hepatocytes or evidence of fibrosis in just non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Uh, there's possibility that if you do have the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it can eventually progress to cirrhosis and liver failure. Um, next would be NASH, which is where you not only have that kind of you can have the fatty liver disease prior to it, but it's not necessarily necessary. Um, and then you have the inflammation and the hepatocellular injuries, so the ballooning of the hepatocytes. It can have fibrosis or it cannot have fibrosis. Generally, it's a very early um, type of fibrosis if it does have it. And this as well can progress to cirrhosis, liver failure, and rarely it can progress to hepatocellular carcinoma you then have your NASH cirrhosis, which uh, has the presence of the cirrhosis, as well as knowing that you have the NASH, you have your cryptogenic cirrhosis, which there's no obvious etiology of it. Uh, And then the last two are particular scores that we're gonna talk about a little bit in detail in the management section. So I'm gonna skip those temporarily. So pathophysiology of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease like I mentioned previously, you kind of start off with healthy liver, something happens where you end up with this multi-hit hypothesis where there's a series of liver insults, and then you end up with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So bear with me for a second, because this is pretty just overall complex with it, but trying to make it as simple as possible, you have, I don't know if this will show up as well, it's green, so it won't but you pretty much have environment and genetic factors. The mouse will, let's see. Okay, all right. So you have your environment and genetic factors. And so your environmental factors overall can affect the expression of those genes, even if they have already are normal or if they already have a variant it can affect the expression and this can induce weight gain. When we have weight gain, usually the deposition of that fat is going to be subcutaneous first. However, once we reach how much our subcutaneous adipose tissue can expand and that capacity is reached, there's nowhere else for those fatty acids to necessarily go. So the mobilization areas increase so that there are other places where the free fatty acids can go. This can is where you end up with visceral and ectopic fat um, deposition. So one of the places of ectopic fat deposition is in the muscle. So in the muscle here, once you get that free fatty acid deposition, you end up with increased uh, insulin resistance. And so by having that increased insulin resistance, you end up with decreased insulin-mediated glucose uptake. From there, we then have where you can have your free fatty acid um, deposition into the pancreas. This can then lead to beta cell dysfunction, which leads to hyperinsulinemia, and that can eventually cause type 2 diabetes. It can also end up causing an increase in sodium reabsorption, which can eventually lead to the hypertension. The other one is our free fatty acid deposition in the adipose tissue, which also, once you reach that expansion um, capacity, increased adipose tissue ends up causing the uh, insulin resistance as well. You get the visceral fat deposition, ectopic fat, increase in free fatty acids as well, decreased adiponectin, and uh, increase in pro-inflammatory adipokines. So, from there, you can end up with just central obesity. So, just from going into the muscle, the pancreas, and then that increase of free fatty acids, you've gotten your three things that are related to metabolic syndrome your central obesity, your hypertension, and your type 2 diabetes. Going directly with the liver, that dysfunctional adipose tissue from the insulin resistance influxes those free fatty acids to the liver, which can then cause an increase in hepatic glucagon resistance over the actual metabolism of the amino acids. So, this then causes a decrease in ureogenesis, which can then result in hyperaminoacidemia. Um, so, since you now have an increase of those amino acids because you're no longer metabolizing them they in and of themselves will also increase that glucagon um, production as well. So you end up in this hyperglucagonemia anemia state, which increases the hepatic glucose release. And then overall within your entire body, you have this global insulin resistant state, which causes hyperinsulinemia. That's kind of where I was going with where it can increase your sodium resorption and hypertension from there. And the liver, particularly, there are a lot of different things that it can cause. It can increase your VLDL triglycerides, decrease your HDL, and increase your LDLs, which can give you that dyslipidemia. One of the other uh, ways that it can affect it is it can, when you get the dysfunctional hepatocytes, they can synthesize and secrete the DPP-4, which promotes inflammation of the adipose tissue, macrophages, and more insulin resistance, which is why one of our medications for diabetes to kind of help with all of that is the DPP-4 inhibitors. So that is the pathophys, and this is just briefly going over some of the stainings histological forum. So from the control that's what the normal liver would look like from the steatosis. You see little fat lobules that are starting. I didn't really focus on the non-defining NASH, but with the NASH, you get a little bit of the ballooning of the cells. And then this is a different type of stain that was used, but it shows particularly the fibrosis, um, that progression within NASH. So you go from the perisinucinals, that's an early fibrosis from it, from a, and it ends up going all the way to bridging fibrosis and C all the way to cirrhosis and D. All right, our morbidity and mortality of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So contrary to what people may think, usually the cardiovascular disease is the main driver of the M&M and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The degree of liver fibrosis in and of itself is the major factor linked to the all-cause mortality. Usually, from what one of the papers that I was reviewing, it mentioned that approximately 25% of individuals with non-alcoholic fatty liver progress to NASH. And of those with NASH, about 25% can then progress to cirrhosis of whom at least 1% to 2% per year can end up developing the hepatocellular carcinoma. However, it's not an all-encompassing disease, so it doesn't follow an orderly progression. It doesn't necessarily have to have the fatty liver before going to NASH um, from it. Um, Obesity, as I previously mentioned, increases the risk of developing these liver diseases. A non-alcoholic fatty liver um, and someone who's obese, your risk ratio is 4.6. For cirrhosis alone, your risk ratio is 4.1, and then hepatocellular carcinoma with obese um, individuals, the risk ratio is 1.89. To kind of put this into perspective with M&M, think about money, because that's usually what we always consider when we're doing healthcare costs. So the annual direct medical cost is around, is greater than $100 billion in the US alone for non-alcoholic fatty liver. And despite the huge investment but the pharmaceutical industries, there's still no approved therapies for targeting. NASH this is the one that they usually use, which is one of the subtypes from the uh, along the spectrum of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, kind of the bulk of our uh, discussion today is the non-alcoholic um, or metabolic associated fatty liver disease management. So, to kind of go into the management portion of it, we kind of need to know the diagnosis, how exactly they do that, as well as the risk um, stratification for it. So, diagnosis um, necessitates the actual proof of the excessive accumulation of the fatty acids and hepatocytes by either imaging or direct, direct visualization. Full standard is still your liver biopsy. It has the highest sensitivity and specificity for it. Your next is your usual fiber scan, the ultrasound-based transient elastography, And then you have your magnetic resonance elastography. The MR elastography can be used both to diagnose and to grade non-alcoholic, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, they did do a meta-analysis with this particular one, and it showed that the sensitivity and specificity reached up to around 82.3% um, and 86.9% respectively. This was on the part of the spectrum at the bottom, the scores that I was talking about. So this particular one um, is the NAS, it's non-alcoholic fatty liver disease activity score. It's a numerical system that tries to determine the severity of the uh, Seattle hepatitis, based on the histological features. So it goes from zero to eight, and it looks at the severity of steatosis, which can get up to three points. You then look at hepatocellular ballooning, which can go to two points, and then lobular inflammation, which can go to three points. Anything that is greater than five is similar to a diagnosis of um, steatohepatitis. and any reduction in the NAS marks a refinement in the histological feature toward the resolution. So this is where you've gotten the liver biopsy, you've given them this score to try to determine are they at the reversible stage and then how can you lower their score under that five. Our next score is the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease fibrosis score, which is NFS. And it usually uses things that we can get in clinic or in the hospital here. So age, BMI, hyperglycemia, platelet count, albumin, ALT, AST, ALT ratio. They did mention in some of the studies that it has a lower sensitivity and specificity. So usually they want further diagnostic modalities such as imaging um, for it. So risk stratification wise for it, there is, a group or a panel who came together to develop a clinical care pathway. And so there are four steps that they usually go through to try to determine how at risk this person is and what is the management that they need to take at that time. So this can be done by primary care, which is usually where we see most of the people here, um, endocrinologists, gastroenterologists, and obesity um, specialists. All of them should screen for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. This particularly is looking for advanced fibrosis. So you identify your patients at risk, anyone who has two or more metabolic risk factors, anyone with type 2 diabetes, and then you've previously seen that they have a fatty liver on imaging or they have elevated LFTs. Then you get your history and you get additional labs. Is there any excessive alcohol intake? From what I have read, it seems as though they consider excessive being greater than 21 drinks um, per week for a male and greater than 14 drinks per week for a female. Um, Your CBC, your liver function test, you need to evaluate for other forms of your liver disease, which is what you're doing there. So you also need to get any labs for hepatitis B, hepatitis C, your ANA, AMA. Um, immunoglobulins, ferritin, alpha-1, antitrypsin. From there, you do your non-invasive testing for fibrosis. So they have a fibrosis score, which looks to see the, I believe it usually goes off of the hepatitis um, virus infection, looking for the fibrosis. But you determine whether they are low risk, intermediate risk, or high risk. And so if they are low risk, you just repeat in two to three years and monitor them. If they are intermediate, you can either refer them automatically to a hepatologist to get a liver biopsy, or you can do the MR elastography, which can both diagnose and breed it. Or you can determine whether if they're intermediate, so you just want to monitor it for two to three years, although still stick closer to that lower end of the spectrum. And if they're a high risk, then you automatically refer them to a hepatologist. From there, and I'm gonna briefly go over this one because I kind of go more in detail um, with the treatment later. If they're a low risk, everyone gets lifestyle intervention. So diet and exercise is always the main way to go. From there, weight loss is recommended if the person has non-alcoholic fatty liver and they are obese. Um, They have certain programs that they can enroll in for exercise treatments. And if that doesn't work, you can always consider pharmacotherapy. If someone is low risk, generally they don't recommend it. If they are intermediate or high risk, they do usually recommend having some type of medication, usually the anti obesity medications. The other options for weight loss is you have your bariatric procedures, which can be either endoscopic or surgical. Um, and we'll discuss those later too. And then your cardiovascular risk reductions, so your statins for people, and if they have diabetes, um, putting them on medications that are proper for them. So low risk, just standard of care. If they're intermediate or high, you want them on medications that have shown to have an efficacy in NASH, so your um, TCDs, your peoplitazones, GLP-1 receptor agonists. So kind of like I mentioned, diet and exercise is cornerstone of um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease management because weight loss improvement. Um, it causes the improvement in hepatic triglyceride contents and in your non-alcoholic um, fatty liver disease activity score. And it's accompanied with a reduction in your cardiovascular risk fractures, such, such as insulin resistance and the level of your serum lipids. So in the m M&M, and it's mainly your cardiovascular risk factors that you're trying to um, aim at. They did have mentioned the Mediterranean diet, while it doesn't necessarily, uh, I believe they did say that um, it resolves non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and it improves insulin sensitivity independent of accompanying weight loss. So you don't necessarily get the weight loss associated with the Mediterranean diet, but you do get improvement of the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Um, But you can also have any other reduced calorie diet and then uh, aerobic activity. Usually the ones that we recommend just based on annual exams are greater than 150 minutes per week. Um, and then the goal, greater than 10,000 steps per day. Usually they try to increase their exercise. So for them, they'll usually try to recommend greater than 200 to 300 minutes per week of exercise to maintain weight loss or to minimize rate gain, weight gain long-term for greater than a year. And they did end up doing an eight-week um, hit exercise program, and they showed that it was beneficial um, on both the intra triglycerides, visceral lipids, and health-related quality of life in diabetic obese patients with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So kind of going over, this one is the um, anti-obesity medications, and there's a simpler picture at the end of all of these, but this goes over particularly the layer glutide, semaglutide, and orlistat. And it looks at the mean percentage of the total body weight loss. And then it looks at our different scores. So the activity score and the um score. And then it mentions briefly any of the adverse events that people have there. So one of the things that I did want to mention, and particularly starting with the semaglutide, because we've seen a lot with the Ozempic and Wagovi, and I know right now there is a decrease of availability um, of the WAGOVI, but they do have different strengths and doses uh, or dosages. Um, Ozempic individually is used to treat type two diabetes and prevent major cardiovascular events, whereas WAGOVI was actually approved in 2021 for chronic weight management and it helps with weight loss. Um, With WAGOVI, they can get it if their BMI is greater than 30 or their BMI is greater than 27, plus they have a comorbid condition. So whether this is hypertension, um, hyperlipidemia, type 2 diabetes. With Wegovy, it did show 14.9% reduction in body weight in 16 months um, versus only 2.4% of weight loss with just the diet and exercise. Um, with the liraglutide, starting from that one, the activity score, so trying to get that person less than five um, for the severity of steatohepatitis went from, it ended up having a negative 1.3 change total, and it had a 74% um, improvement. And so 39% had complete resolution with liraglutide from their steatohepatitis. Simaglutide had about a 17% um, difference after about 72 weeks. And Orlistat, they didn't necessarily do the uh, severity of the steatohepatitis, but they did do the fibrosis, and it did have minimal, but still um, a change of about 0.14 um, in the fibrosis. Other options that they did mention were Fintermine and concave, which are our oral options, but they didn't measure the NAS or the NFS for those. Um, Diabetic patients usually will take the liraglutide and the semaglutide, so talking about them in particular um, for those. Metformin is also one that was mentioned. Um, There is no substantial impact on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, but... The tests that they usually or the trials that they did end up doing on these patients didn't necessarily mark just diabetic patients um, in particular, so that would definitely be something to consider looking at in only diabetic patients. Your TZDs, which I had mentioned, the pioglitazone, it's shown um, an improvement in the progression. Your DPP4 inhibitors, which kind of go back to that pathophysiology from the influx of the free fatty acids. Um, We've mentioned the GLP-1 receptor agonists, and then they are doing some studies as well with the SGLT2 inhibitors. This and the next slide go over particularly the management options of the bariatric procedures. This one is on the endoscopic bariatric procedures and the next one's on the surgical. So for the endoscopic ones, the first one is the intragastric balloon. What they end up doing is they put an empty balloon into the stomach through an upper endoscopy, inflate the balloon um, with air or saline to reduce the stomach volume and then leave it in the stomach. What ends up happening is that when the person is eating, since they already have that part of their stomach um, occupied, they have early satiety and that results in weight loss. And they found that with the severity of the hepatitis, 90% had um, about a 3%, three point change and improvement in um, that score. And with the fibrosis, they ended up having uh, almost entire stage one point one seven stages improvements um, in 15% of the people. The other one is the endoscopic sleeve uh, gastroplasty. It's minimally invasive bariatric procedure as well. It's done endoscopically through a suturing device um, to remodel the greater curvature of the stomach. With this one, they found with the severity score, um, activity score, it had about a four-point um, change per year using the hepatic steatosis index, and with the fibrosis score, it had about 20% um, significant improvement. With any of these, they all do have their adverse effects, so it's kind of a risk versus benefit um, conversation to have with the patient. And then we have our traditional bariatric uh, surgical procedures: our sleeve gastrectomy and our roux y uh, For these as understandable, we've seen them um, a lot more common. The activity um, severity score had about a 2.3 uh, improvement. And for the Ruon Y, the activity score had a 2.8 score improvement. Um, they did have, and for some of them with the Ruon Y, either complete or um, improvement, uh, either complete resolution or an improvement in the steatosis or steatohepatitis. This kind of just summarizes what that particular, um, those three slides we're talking about. It mentions the medications, the endoscopic procedures, and our bariatric surgeries. The first um, percentage is your percentage of weight loss. So the eight percent for the liraglutide, thirteen percent for semaglutide, and eight point three for orlistat. For our endoscopic procedures, the intracastric balloon that's left inside has about eleven point seven percent total weight loss, and then. The sleep um, gastroplasty has 14.9%, and then from our bariatric procedures, um, they have slightly bigger total body um, weight loss percentage. So your sleep gastrectomy has 31.7%, and then your gastric bypass has 34.6%. The next two numbers on all of them um, show the NAS and the NFS scores, and the ones with the semaglutide with RES show resolution of them. So ongoing clinical trials. I know in the clinic we have one of our newer medications, um, Mongiorno, that has recently come out. It's another um, GLP-1 receptor agonist. It was approved in May 2022 to treat type 2 diabetes in their SIRMOT1 trial. However, it did show during um, that trial that there was a 22.5% reduction in body weight if the person was on the 15 milligram dose. So the FDA put them on a fast track to um, be designated as a treatment for obesity on October the 6th. What that pretty much means is that as the trial is ongoing, the FDA reviews the information as it comes through rather than waiting until the trial is completely gone. So they're currently doing the Sermont II trial to see if they can have this officially approved for um, obesity. And this trial completes April, 2023 because I know that we technically are using it for um, obesity, but it's not what they initially improved it for. Another one that they are doing a trial on, and this is on the phase three, it is a, for obeticholic, which I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, acid treatment for NASH patients. So like I had previously mentioned, the greater than $100 billion Um, in the annual direct medical costs, but we don't have any medications directly for um, NASH, this would end up being directly for it. And they want to see and evaluate the effect on the histological improvement, as well as the liver-related clinical outcomes in patients with non-serotic NASH. The inclusion criteria, I did include that for it, Um, had the adults that were 18 or older, your histological evidence of fibrosis 2 or 3, or if they are in the earlier stages of 1A, um, 1B for fibrosis, but they have greater than one risk factor, then they can be included. They did want them to have a stable body weight. They wanted them to not be on a TCD or a glitazone. So if there were any diabetic patients, They either didn't want them on it or they had to be on a stable dose for at least six months before day one of starting the procedure. Female um, subjects had to be on greater than one contraceptive method as well um, during the trial, up to 30 days after. All right. So in conclusion, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the most common chronic liver disease, and it's associated with several metabolic comorbidities. Prompt intervention after you do get the initial diagnosis is needed to uh, to reduce the progression to advanced stage liver disease and reduce the related cardiovascular disease effects. Weight loss is your mainstay in treating non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which can lead to an improvement in both your activity score and your fibrosis score. These include your diet and exercise, but you also have your anti-obesity medications and your endoscopic and surgical bariatric activities. Um, There is still both exact efficacy of some medications and bariatric interventions that needs to be further evaluated and standardized and well-designed RCTs. Um, as well. And we currently still have some that are ongoing currently. So these are the references that were used. Big thank you to both my mentor and the GME faculty. And then QR code and any questions.
2: Uh, one of the things, I mean, this is treating this right now with almost 75% of the population being obese or overweight, it's really a big dilemma. So I really don't know how to approach it. I'm just going to go multi approach to it. One of the things that once you begin to get obese, you're going to have liver disease, no but wise. And then on top of that, you have insomnia. You wake up with insomnia, you don't sleep, you have sleep apnea. Guess what? You want to go get donuts, and you're going to see like 20 cops there at the donut shop before you. So it's one of those things that no matter what you try to do, more or less, it becomes even worse and worse and worse. Things that help regenerate, well, let me go back real quick. Stevia is one of the best sugars you can take. There's also erythro and xylitol, and there's hickory, uh, hickory root, you know, that you can take also, which gives you a sugary kind of taste, but it doesn't. It uh, doesn't promote the insulin index from going up, so your pancreas doesn't move. The beta cells don't produce any insulin. You can eat it, and it doesn't do anything to you. The other thing more or less that uh, helps you with this problem more or less is try to eat between 12 and 4 o'clock, and don't eat after that. You can eat those four hours as much as you can, but try to do 20-hour fasting. Don't eat at night. Also, elevate the back of your bed. Uh, for you. No, so you won't have sleep apnea. Things that also help you is uh, little things that comes from India. It's called, um, um, uh, besides the syria, it's gemnema. comes from a leaf, and it makes you lose weight because it makes the sugars, once you taste sugar, it makes it taste like cardboard. So you really, you know, reproach on it, and you don't want it things that help your liver regenerate and maintain, but you got to go with diet. And to me, the best diet there is, one of the best ones is ketogenic, along with extra virgin coconut oil. The other thing is um, go with uh, milk thistle, milk thistle, 500 milligrams. You got to read about this. Don't, you know, just take my word and look it up. Uh, Milk thistle, along with choline, 500 milligrams helps you regenerate the liver incredibly, but it all starts with your mouth. You got to stop eating the wrong things more or less. And does exercise help? Yeah, big time. No, but twice, you know. And your mentation also helps a lot, so. Uh, yes. That's-
1: I completely agree with that, and I looked separately into the whole intermittent fasting with everything and how technically with that 72-hour period, as long as you can go from, you can do 24, 36 hours and all of those. So I completely agree. Thank you.
0: I don't see any questions online. Did we have any other in the room? Here we go.
2: Uh, Great presentation, Paige. Just two questions. Uh, First one, you briefly touched upon the genetic factors that come into play. Uh, for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, if there were any particular genes that were identified. And the second one would be once you do diagnose uh, NAFLD and you do recommend them weight
0: loss
1: or medication, how do you follow them up or if you follow them
2: up with imaging or?
1: Gotcha. So I guess going with the first one with the genetic factors, from the papers and articles that I did read through, I saw at least two genes that had previously um, been studied. One of them was the PNPLA3, I believe it was. And that particular one encodes um, adiponutum in the adipocytes and hepatocytes. And what that is thought to Regulate the development of adipocytes as well as lipogenesis, lipolysis. And so, if there is a variant or a mutation or the epigenetics, thinking about the environment and all of that, it can increase the lipogenesis portion of it, but it decreases lipolysis. So, you end up with more of the fatty. Um, fat deposition. The other one was more so for, I think it was a master regulator of the um, metabolic syndrome as a whole. And that one was TM6. um, What was it? Uh, TM6 Five F2. And I think that one was the one where, um, it was more of a master regulator and it was not only for advanced, um, liver disease, but it also looked at the cardiovascular, um, effects that could happen from it. Um, with looking at monitoring them, once you've diagnosed and started them on a regimen, if you, you can not, no one wants to get multiple, uh, liver biopsies from it, so imaging is likely the easiest one to be non-invasive and look for it um, to determine whether that's six months after, three to six months after, to follow up on it to make sure, but I didn't particularly look at that. That would be just something that I would discuss with the patient and then make a better plan from it.
0: Thank you. Other questions?
2: By uh, the other way, I forgot. Uh, eliminate processed foods as much as you can. Burger King, McDonald's, Longhorns, you know what I mean? Try to eat at home. Also the estrogen levels goes up. So men get a lot of mastia more than anything else. You know, it's one of those things. And that's just about it. Thank you. And by the way, great, to the point. G- great you. presentation.
0: Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Quinn.